happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 133 for May the 8th. 2019. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I am still the director of technology for the Cassidy School. And I am joined, as always, by my partner in ed tech analysis and technology news analysis, Jason Neifer, up in Missoula, Montana, where he has been on the road, apparently testing the theory that Montana from a you know width standpoint is is pretty big and, yeah. and is that is that hypothesis <laughs> confirmed jason it is uh we i've spent the last uh three days uh with my uh uh co-worker and, and friend mike gustinelli who's uh a part of my staff at the montana digital academy which is the state virtual school of montana located on the university of montana campus we did site visits the last three days so we saw far kind of north northwest Montana, uh, fabulous Eureka, Montana, which is just a couple miles south of the U.S.-Canadian border. And then we also went far west-northwest to Knoxon, Montana, which is about a half an hour or so from the Montana-Idaho border. So saw some beautiful country and met with some great school leaders and supporters of our program in their local public schools and uh, also saw spring, which has been uh, more elusive than one might assume for April and May in a particular calendar year. So we were pretty excited to see some uh, wonderful signs of spring throughout far western Montana. So ignoring the weather outside, Wes, what is this whole thing about? Well, apparently, we are getting together again, yet again, to talk about the week's technology news and do that with an educational lens. And we were out last week. I will take the blame. We had a little concert that was pretty fun and uh, that had been postponed from March. And so, anyway, as sometimes things come up, we were not here. But we've got two weeks of news to take a look at, especially the Google I.O. event, which just happened yesterday and probably makes this one of the, um, you know, most technology news, certainly from a Google standpoint, but even just, I think it's, it's always exciting. I think there's always just a ton to talk about when Google IO happens. And maybe someday Jason and I will venture out to the Google IO event and make that a professional development experience as well as face-to-face -face podcasting opportunity. But for now, we'll have to settle for virtual. So do you want to start there, Jason, or do you want to start somewhere else tonight? Sure, let's let's jump into Google I.O. Uh, so uh, every year there's a, a big developer conference called Google I.O. And there's a lot of speculation this year about what direction Google might go into for no other reason than Google, along with other major technical companies, are facing you know, increased scrutiny as part of the so-called technology correction that Wes and I have referred to in past episodes of the podcast. But um, there is a lot of interesting things here in regards to you know some, some ways that Google is trying to change your experience um, uh, with technology and the way it does things like store data. But I thought we'd start with probably the, at least the most interesting news from a pure geek standpoint. Uh, Google released a new phone at Google IO this week. It's referred to as the Pixel 3, 3A, excuse me. And so for those of you unaware, Google has been in the phone business for some time now. Uh, starting with uh, the so-called Nexus phones, which were kind of uh, proof-of-concept phones that Google released to the Google faithful uh, in hopes of showing other manufacturers kind of how they envisioned what a phone should look like in the years that they, they were released. And I've owned uh, two uh, Google phones. One of them was the Nexus 6, which was their ginormous uh, cell phone, one of the last in the lines of the so-called Nexus phones. And then three years ago, they introduced the Pixel program, which is is both Chromebooks, there is the Pixelbook, which released was released two years ago, that is kind of their proof of concept laptop. It's my now daily driver. And then uh, they've had the Pixel 1, Pixel 2, and Pixel 3 phones. Um, for a story that I will not share tonight, but sometime in the future, I'm now carrying around a Pixel 1 phone uh, because it works better with some of the uh, medical equipment that I use that interfaces with my phone. And it's not, it's, it's a long story. I'm having actually a little bit of a struggle with our friends at Google right now about that and maybe some details on a future podcast. But the Google 
uh, a 3A is a, a fourth version of the so-called Pixel phone, but it is considered to be a mid-range phone. And what that means is that there's really three categories of kind of markets in the North American cell phone market. There is high-end flagship phones. Those phones now are anywhere from $800 to $1,400, depending on how much you want to spend and various uh, specs. There are middle range phones, and so uh, uh, most of the major manufacturers like Samsung, LG, HTC, Lenovo, Motorola, they'll make phones that are in the four to six hundred dollar range that are scaled back a little bit hardware wise, um, but are supposed to offer a, a decent user experience. There's also plenty of low-range phones, which are anywhere from $49.99 to $200, uh, which uh, both Wes and I have actually carried around a low-end Android phone before and had a pretty decent experience with it. But the idea behind low-end phones is that those are the mass-produced phones that you'd buy for someone that perhaps is looking for a budget a phone um, and be willing to accept some compromises. So Google is making a really interesting effort by jumping into the, the mid-range phone market. The 3A phone is basically smaller in the amount of memory it has to store things like apps, photos, music and media. Um, it is not quite as stunning looking because the, the latest Pixel phones have the so-called notch in them, which allow them to have a near full tray experience. The 3A adopts uh, some uh, 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 area around the top and bottom, some bezels that, that essentially allow the... Um, the, the kind of selfie cam to exist, which is not something that the high-end cell phones now do. And otherwise, uh, it looks, oh, and it's, it's got a slower chip. I should also say that, too. It's a, uh, a new version of a mid-range chip, but they're selling this phone for anywhere from $400 to $500. And right now, there's deals across all major carriers. You can get this even cheaper with trade-ins or adding new lines. So that's probably a longer description than, than the typical person might need. But the idea here is that Google is now kind of back in the mid-range business. They kind of started their Nexus phones used to be known for their for being inexpensive and accessible to users. And now that they're moving in this direction now with the, the Google Pixel 3a. So Wes, I guess I'll start with, is this tempting to you at all as an end user? Oh, it is. Uh, I think I'm going to stick with the iPhone. We've got a family that's invested in that and, you know, being able to share, share pictures and airdrop and being able to airplay as well at school, right? We've got Apple TVs in all of our conference areas, basically. Um, you know, I don't think so, but boy, is it tempting. And is it ever wonderful to see Google stepping into this arena uh, with a very high quality camera, which is one of the, the big things that people look at in terms of deciding whether or not to upgrade. Um, I, I think it's hugely attractive. So, um, you know, we're seeing different ways in which both Apple and other companies are differentiating themselves. Um, I think Apple is really going to continue to push on privacy. And that's something we can talk about because Google is doing some things, uh, even though their company is basically founded on surveillance capitalism at this point, uh, they are doing some things to empower users to not only be more aware of privacy issues, but to be able to um, you know, take more active control of data. But I think it's great that, you know, in the day of, of the fold phone, just freaking ridiculous price, right? And, you know, these iPhone 10s and just thousands of dollars. I mean, that was part of my story, whatever that was, a year and a half ago when I went Android, which ended up being for nine months. Uh, you know, it was, it was really essentially being, I don't know if this is a conscientious objector, but protesting this whole idea that smartphones should freaking cost a thousand dollars. And it's ridiculous, right. especially with the plateau that we've seen in processor capability uh, and, and really the, the commoditization of the consumer. I don't know what that is, but I think it's commoditization of, of smartphone capability where you can have many, many of the same functions in whatever kind of phone you pick up. And uh, you know the other piece for me too is that I, I do think that that uh, phone manufacturers and designers have left let go of the, the kind of mid range of the cell phones. I also think uh, one thousand dollar cell phones are utterly utterly ridiculous. But the problem is is that in the middle uh, range there isn't a lot there that has premium components that could be 
uh, fit into a mid-range price, compromising in other areas. Um, I'm not totally thrilled, for example, that the battery's not larger. Um, I also think from a storage space standpoint, 64 gigs should be enough for the typical user, but I do like to carry local media on my phone for traveling and for listening to uh, music as part of my, my, my own personal music collection. I would like to see that to be at 128 gigs as opposed to 64, but otherwise there's a lot of interesting bits to this phone. And again, I won't share the full story tonight of my current Pixel phone um, uh, because it's... Uh, um, uh, a sad story that doesn't have a good ending quite yet, but I do think that this is a, 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 a maybe an opportunity for me personally that I might look into. And I'd also like to see those mid-range uh, 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 cell chips that they're using, the Snapdragon, I think it's a, a 670 or uh, was the, the number of that particular uh, processor. Those mid-range ones are interesting and usually actually pretty solid. So um, I'm curious and I will probably be a customer of that at some point. So I'd like to uh, actually reference a couple videos. I'm, I'm dropping one of them in the chat now, which um, I did not watch the whole IO event. I, I did start this evening, uh, saw Sundar Pichai's um, initial beginning to the keynote. But what I what I did do was take the Cliff Notes version, uh, which a wonderful one is from The Verge. It's called Google IO 2019 event in 13 minutes. So again, shout out to YouTube and its recommendation engine on on my Apple TV. Uh, I really you know enjoy looking at stuff like that. So that that gave me a really nice summary of a whole lot. But I do want to point out if you watch the actual keynote, um, I, I, I think it was two years ago when Google was really uh, making this pivot uh, to say that we were in a, a post post mobile world, right? Uh, and they were really talking about, I think, the pivot to artificial intelligence and machine learning um, and recognizing some some pretty fundamental shifts in the uh, landscape of digital technology and communications in society. Well, Pachai's statement, which is at two minutes and 20 seconds of the opening keynote, is that Google, quote, is changing from a company that helps you find answers to a company that helps you get things done. And, of course, Google for all of us that use G Suite and the, uh, you know, Google apps, Google Drive, you know, that's, that's been true, uh, forever, you know, <laughs> forever, you know, since we've been using the, the web and, and Google has come about because, you know, the advent of Google apps and the ability to work on the web, uh, get things done has been a big part of it. But I think that's really, uh, important and interesting. And I love the way that as with a lot of coding things, you know, coders and, and Googlers are, are, by and large, a, a, a group of developers, and then of course with good marketing, can say things in very concise and sometimes elegant ways. And so the way that they're focusing on things and the way he articulates that is really good. The number one thing uh, that I am excited about, I am excited about the the Pixel 3a phone, um, but the the indexing of podcasts. And so at five minutes and thirty five seconds of the opening title, Pachai announces that Google, that they have been for a while, if you download the Google News app, um, they have a really nice feature that's called full coverage. And so in response to this, you know, issue of, of echo chambers and, you know, how we um, can end up basically just, you know, seeing articles and things like that, that, that really um, correspond to our own views and don't necessarily challenge us and, and represent other perspectives. Um, I don't know if you can, uh, it's been, may not be viewable in my bright phone, but below this article, it says view full coverage. And so you're going to see a variety of different perspectives, different, you know, news sources, vetted sources, uh, but they're going to be representing, you know, left and right politically and, and, and just different kinds of perspectives. I think we've talked about this happening, that this is probably happening and going to happen. But the fact that Google is now going to be indexing the content of podcasts in search. So it's not just the titles and the meta tags, because, you know, if you look at our show on edtechsr.com, um, you know, we, we put tags on the post. We write, you know, hopefully pretty accurate descriptions of the things that we're discussing. We've got links to those. All of that helps train the Google or the Bing or whatever is the search engine, you know, what is this kind of content, hoping that that's going to help people find it and locate it. The fact that Google now, it sounds like, is going to have full on text transcriptions of podcasts and it's going to include that means that the words that Jason and I are speaking right now, you know, potentially are going to be, you know, 
ending up in search results that they wouldn't have been otherwise. And so that is exciting, but it's also important to think about because, and now that I say this, I've been considering writing a blog post about a provenance in, uh, in Western China where the surveillance state actually, I, I, I'll put this in, um, as a geek of the week, but I've, I've listened to a podcast recently. It was the daily. It's about the surveillance state there. And if you speak about this, you could very well put yourself on a list, you know, if you try to travel in said country. And so, you know, we are accountable, of course, to things that we say and do face to face and digitally. That's a key digital citizenship lesson that we try to communicate to students. But, uh, it's just in here in thinking about that now, right? Um, hey, whatever we say here, uh, potentially is going to be in, in search results. So what do you think, Jason? Is that exciting to you? Does that seem sobering? Was this inevitable? Did you see this coming? I think it was inevitable. And in fact, I, I, it's a sign. I think that Google kind of understands the podcasts are going in the right direction. I've been a little confused about why Apple and Google haven't put together better podcasting apps because it feels like it's a real value add that could add to their collection of standardized apps on both the iOS and Android platforms. So for me, I think this is a, a future acknowledgement that podcasting is becoming a real channel of media communication and, you know, ignoring the fact that it allows folks like Wes and I to put on a podcast, right? We're obviously citizen podcasters that, that are uh, hanging out on the long tail, have a relatively small audience that this, where this podcast would be meaningful. Let's not forget that on the other end of the spectrum, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of excellent, uh, uh, traditionally produced you know, radio, public radio style podcasts that offer an extraordinary variety of information and points of view and resources and detailed stories and uh, features on uh, somewhat narrow topics and having that information in a, a search engine where it is going to work on, uh, you know, text a search inside of transcripts that it, it automatically creates is extremely exciting for me. And I also think that, uh, to be honest, it meets some of Google's original missions. Remember, they got in trouble for attempting to scan every book ever. And uh, while I lauded that effort and still think it was a wonderful thing uh, for them to do in research in local libraries, if they're going to continue to try to find ways to enter new pieces of media into those databases, I think that is pretty rock and roll. Awesome. All right. Well, what else caught your eye at IO19? Um, I'm also interested, and there's a great article about this uh, uh, at 9to5Google yesterday, that Google Lens is one of the kind of uh, augmented reality or AR apps um, uh, that uh, uh, is being uh, kind of evolved. Uh, for those of you that uh, don't remember the kind of background of Google Lens, this was originally referred to as Word Lens. Uh, this was five or six years ago, and it was always one of my favorite apps to show to crowds about how smartphones could really revolutionize the world around us. And the stories I would usually tell about, about my first start in international travel uh, 20 years ago uh, this next coming summer um, were a little intimidating for me because I don't speak another language other than English, sometimes to my embarrassment. And um, the bottom line is that I had to rely on my then-girlfriend, now wife Allison, who was very adept at other languages to kind of guide us around. And it was kind of kind of scary sometimes because, um, you know, you're in a, a, an un, a unfamiliar location, you don't speak the language. A um, little silly uh, when in places like Paris, because a lot of people happen to speak English in that particular country. But uh, WordLens was an amazing app that allowed you to open up a camera window and it would automatically translate uh, words in the camera view to the language of your choice. It was a stunningly interesting app and a great demonstration app. Well, Google bought the WordLens software and they've been slowly and surely uh, working on new and interesting ways to make um, this technology uh, more accessible inside the Google world. And so they're starting to add functionality to it. Uh, one of the new new pieces of functionality is the ability to um, 
uh, take a look at a menu. So you're in a restaurant, you look at a menu, and it uses the information it's collected on the menu, or I'm sorry, as part of its, its review process to highlight dishes that were mentioned positively in reviews before. Like see the most popular, you know, dish. And then exactly. photographs of it and... And yeah. extraordinary, right? Like it's just something that when you're talking about putting you know, different kinds of information together is, is pretty interesting. Um, you can snap a picture of a, a check at the end of the night and it will help divide up the check amongst peoples and also uh, uh, be, become a, a tip calculator. Uh, which is, you know, a little but kind of interesting. Um, and then it, it, it can also provide you, uh, uh, when you look at for things like, uh, pictures of foods, right? Like featured pictures of foods, whether a restaurant or other ways, you can, you can also then see things like recipes that it's found on the internet for something similar, which is just really extraordinary to me. So very excited about the release of that. That's a little thing. But it is, you know, I, I feel like virtual reality has really diminished the excitement around augmented reality, which I think is in many ways a lot more accessible to people now and could have a lot more uh, effect on the way people live their lives. And shout out to futurists, Amy Webb and others who say that glasses are the future. We're at uh, smart at smartphone peak and as batteries get smaller and transmission capabilities of, you know, microprocessors and antennas and all that stuff continues to miniaturize, we're going to be seeing, um, you know, a whole era of glasses-based interfaces because you're not going to have to go, oh, gosh, my screen's just four inches or this is 5.2 or whatever. You know, you're not going to – you're not going to have – maybe you're going to have – something else that connects to it, but this is, this is going to be your screen and the ability to bring that kind of information to the real world. Again, like we'll talk about in the geek of the week. I mean, on a surveillance standpoint, when you're going to, you know, have comprehensive uh, data files on the millions of people that live in your, in your country um, so that you can relocate them to uh, re-education camps or, or whatever. There's certainly some dark sides to that, uh, but there's some incredibly compelling sides to that as well. Did you pick up the part about Duo? Because last year was when they announced that, was it Duo or what is it? When they, they, it'll call for you because they have this technology. It's not a Duo. Duo is a, an app, I think, that's like FaceTime for being able to do, you know, video chats and stuff. But there's a, another level at which this AI, and this is again, shout out to the Verge's, you know, IO in 13 minutes. Uh, basically is going to let you, it's going to start doing work for you like an assistant. So if you tell the assistant something like, Hey G, um, you know, book me a hotel room for my trip to Chicago next week. It's going to go ahead and search. It's going to know where your conference is because it's in your calendar. It's going to bring those things up. It, you know, it's going to leave you in charge. And I'm just quoting what Google was saying in their their promo here, um, but basically it's going to take on greater capabilities of an, of a smart assistant. Yeah, it's like uh, you know somebody who is your your uh, assistant at the office is able to do. So I think those things are pretty exciting, and um, I think you're right, Jason. the The prospects for augmented reality are are just they're stunning, and you see all of these technology companies continuing to make big bets on AR. Uh, VR as well, but especially AR in the shorter term, I think. Yep. So it's good to and, this. and the tool you're looking for, it's Google Duplex is the name of that, that new software. And uh, they did announce uh, uh, additional enhancements this week to the Duplex software, including allowing you to rent cars and then also buy movie tickets. I'll admit that I have not played with that yet, uh, partly because... Um, I don't know. I, I, there was a lot of ethical uh, chit chat about that. Uh, and I still think there are some an unanswered questions about kind of humanoid voices and what that means in context of, uh, um, in context of our, um, kind of broader system. But I think that, uh, it, it's going good places, I think, and they're going to get it figured out. So. Well, <laughs> in light of the, the weaponization of social media and the, the believability of those kinds of voices, right? That's part of the, the, the march of technology in terms of them being able to have full text transcriptions of podcasts is just how good speech to text is becoming and the faith that they're going to have in, in having an accurate transcription. So hopefully whatever accents from Oklahoma and Montana Jason and I have, you know, are, are decipherable. In fact, that'll be interesting. Will we be able to access 
the full text transcription of our podcast, will we be able to edit them in much the same way that you can go into YouTube and, and ask for or turn on an automated transcription? But if it messes up, you know, you can go in there and edit and fix it. That that'll be interesting to see uh, what Google does with that. But, you know, there's also this very dark capability of being able to create, you know, disinformation and, um, you know, fa- just fabricate stuff that you that you publish and, and you put out there. And so anyway, the march of technology has the, the good and the bad. Um, <laughs> and I, the truth. I'd like to uh, go to a TechCrunch article f- uh, from yesterday, May 7th. Uh, that was titled Google expands digital well-being tools to include a new focus mode and adds improved parental controls to Android. And so these aren't, you know, coming to iOS yet, but we have, um, I think done, um, a good service for the parents at our school in offering up some opportunities. We did it last December to look at iOS 12 and specifically the things on the iPhone, the features on the iPhone um, that let you monitor your screen time, that let you set some limits for yourself, that let you set some, some boundaries and limits for your kids, uh, be aware of what they're doing. And Google is marching down that road as well. And, and so there's another article I hope to, to get to that talks a little bit about interruptibility uh, how crazy office and, and work communications have become and, and the author argues maybe not actually improving our efficiency, uh, maybe even going the other direction. So it's really good to see technology companies recognizing that, you know, interruptibility, distraction, addiction, uh, these are all features of using modern smartphones and social, social media. Uh, and so I think in the focus mode, you can determine you know, what, if you want to be interrupted, what apps you want to be interrupted by, and basically, you know, allows you to be more intentional about the way that you are using your smartphone. And I think this was something Beth Holland said, you know, a number of episodes ago, but her analogy was like, like cotillion, which obviously that's not something that everybody did or has done or whatever, but that that's like, going to learn how to dance, how to, you know, hold your silverware, where you pick it up, like all these things that you learn for, for social uh, skills. And that was something that in, in certain cultures and, and environments that, you know, parents would say, yes, my children need to go do this. Well, we kind of need, you know, digital technology cotillion. We need for not only kids and, and students, but adults as well. Um, to, to learn ways and to be encouraged to be very intentional and thoughtful and not just like, Oh, I've got my phone. Let me just turn it on and, you know, plug, plug my brain into it without any, any kind of, you know, break or pause button. And so I think those are good. Have you played with any of those tools, Jason, in terms of, um, screen time or, um, obviously not, yeah, the, the cats don't necessarily need to have screen time limited there, but, um, what, what do you think about these tools and do you see, uh, Google going in. And, uh, are they are they doing this from a from a good, authentic uh, motivation in your estimation? Um, because obviously it kind of works against some of their their bottom lines in, in right. terms of advertising. Uh, yes, I play a little bit with the. There's a, a thing in Android that has appeared in uh, both the phones, uh, Android phones I've used in the last a couple of months, and I think it's it is called the Wellbeing something, Wellbeing Assistant, or something along those lines. It's interesting. Um, I would say that uh, you know I I'm, I'm getting better about artificially limiting my my own engagement in these tools, and so not that I don't find them necessary, but I really frankly hope to spend some quality time kind of figuring this out for myself, so that I don't have to rely on a tool to do that. I think these are all wonderful things. It requires you turn them on though. Uh, and, and the other piece is, is that, uh, you know, I, I do, I do think it's great that there are a lot of, of, of new parent controls, but that all assumes, of course, that, you know, the parents are trained and feel confident to be able to do that. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. I'm, you know, super, super happy and impressed, Wes, about what you guys do in regards to training parents, because I think that's a very important component. Uh, parental literacy when it comes to technology is an extraordinary need. And these tools are, are, are literally worthless if we can't, um, uh, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, teach parents how to use them, right? Or to have a means for them to, to turn them on and meaningfully regulate their, their, their kiddos use. But yeah, I think this is all the right direction. It's, it's, when it comes to motive though, it's hard to say. Uh, I think that tech companies are reading the writing on the wall, but at the same time, um, you know, a lot of people, 
even related to the various privacy things that Google announced this week. A lot of security and privacy experts have not necessarily called foul, but just have said they're not impressed, right? Like I and I, I was trying to find the article earlier, and it was based on a tweet earlier today where someone said pretty frankly that this is really great that uh, you know Google's providing you all these you know, new and interesting and evolved ways to protect your data, but why is Google or why is Google you know collecting that data in the first place? Like why build a business model around taking and using perhaps for nefarious purposes people's private information? So I don't it's a it's a soul searching that's going on right now in the technology industry. It's all part of the larger tech correction, I think, as we figure out where these things fit and interact with one another. And I will stay uh, forever curious about what the next step is in this process. Awesome. What else would you like to talk about tonight? Well, um, I think we can move on from the Google stuff. Uh, oh, I, I guess I would add one of the pieces related to that. There was a great Forbes article uh, the other day that was kind of a pre-announcement on behalf of Google. Uh, there are a lot of interesting new things that Google is doing uh, privacy-wise. For example, there's an incognito mode that's coming in Maps. So you can do and guess, search and search and, and search. Uh, so that's a that's a really great thing. Um, I use an incognito quite a bit uh, in Google when I'm searching for products or something that I don't want to follow me around on advertising for weeks or months at a time. Um, Google's also adding a means of you. You've been always able to go in and delete private data that Google has about you. It's one of the reasons why I tend to trust Google a little more than other companies because I feel like they will show you your data and give you the opportunity to delete that data. But you can also set up settings now that delete your data automatically after X amount of time. So location data is a good example of this. If you use Google Maps or use an Android phone and have location turned on, your location is tracked in in your Google account. You can have that information automatically deleted uh, over X or Y amount of time. So I think that's all also good pieces um, you know, to have to deal with uh, 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 your privacy and your data over time. So I would say that's all on the Google front for me. Okay, uh, that sounds good. Where should we go next? Well, uh, let's do a couple quick uh, Microsoft announcements. Uh, I was expecting actually to, to have a lot of uh, announcements related to the Microsoft Build Conference, which was last week. It usually creates a lot of interesting buzz around Microsoft stuff. Uh, but to be frank, I didn't see a whole lot that was interesting in the news about this. Um, I will uh, uh, create or talk about a couple links here. The first one is that Microsoft will be or has announced they'll be shipping um, a full version of Linux on the next version of Windows 10. Uh, apologies for the the geekiness of, of this announcement, but it there's no my, need to apologize for <laughs> geekiness here on the EdTech situation. It's a, I'm amongst friends here, right? Um, for for those that have been tracking this over time, Microsoft used to mock Linux, you know, which is the operating system that runs the vast majority of web servers on Earth, and also is the underlying operating system under Chromebooks. It's also can be a desktop operating system that I've actually used on a number of occasions because it's good and fast and uh, uh, free, as it turns out. But uh, uh, Windows has always been pretty mocky of open source and of the Linux platform. And Windows 10, the second half uh, release of Windows 10 in 2019 will include a full Linux kernel. You can actually download components um, uh, uh, to add on top of that from the uh, Microsoft Store, and then also uh, install Linux-based applications on your Windows machine. That's amazing. That is, is. absolutely I, – I don't think I ever would have thought that would happen. No, and they're super embracing open source software too. So another great article, again, power user stuff, but this is from um, – uh, the Verge, uh, today's edition of The Verge, uh, for those of you that remember back to Windows XP, there's a great set of tools called Microsoft Power Toys, and the Power Toys were little applications that, you know, added interesting things to, uh, 
your workflow. For example, it needs to have a really, really, really great uh, a click icon in the tray where you could change the resolution of your monitor super quickly. And so for those carrying around Windows XP boxes or Windows XP laptops that plug into projectors and want to change resolution quickly to match a, 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 project, a resolution for a projector, it's super easy to do that. And they eliminated those in Windows um uh, seven and ultimately obviously in eight and now 10 and they're going to bring that back and they've open sourced them so you can go take a look at the um, the source code of it add additions to it or make suggestions and it will eventually allow those to be downloads onto windows 10 so just such a different kind of response to open source software at Microsoft. I find that to be uh, actually very refreshing attitude from them. And the fact that they are trying to be uh, you know, more cloud driven and no, no matter what your device is, they offer tools for that, I think is smart in their direction. I thought I'd drop some uh, a Microsoft article here. I may have to, to go find it and put it in. Uh, but Microsoft's being plagued again by issues with updates. Uh, some folks have had recommendations to, to freeze updates to not, you know, um, you know, manually do it because uh, may or may not work well with your machine. So I see Microsoft still struggling to make their way. You know, they have a legacy operating system um, as Apple does, frankly, although Apple is Linux based. But, um, you know, they're trying to figure out how to make this more secure and how to just, you know, bring this. You know, they're, they're not throwing the whole thing away and, and starting over, you know, basically like Apple did with, with, uh, back in the day of OS 9 and when they moved to, to the NXT, uh, next platform, whatever, and, and, and Linux and all that. So anyway, um, they're, they're continuing to struggle. Do you want to mention something about the 365 accounts? Cause that's in a, another section there, but it's I will. Yeah. Article. There's a good article last week about how there's been a, a pretty dramatic uptick in Office 365 hacks, um, and the security researchers are sending out, uh, I guess, warning information to say that you should absolutely uh, make sure that you have a good secure password and utilize other uh, tools for things like two-factor authentication. And um, the this was partly because I want to talk about um, you know, the careful nature of this, but there is a wonderful tool that you can use that does add great two-factor authentication um, uh, uh, to your Android, and I believe also to your iOS phone, but Microsoft has a great uh, uh, app called Authenticator that plugs into your Microsoft account, and every time I log into my Microsoft account, uh, any of my Microsoft accounts, uh, and want to be able to add a second factor to that, I can download that app and it will just send a notification to me that I can approve in the notification shade and then it allows me to log in. So uh, great opportunities there. And if you, particularly if you are in a district with, with uh, uh, a wide use of uh, Microsoft 365 services, definitely consider you know, allowing for second factor authentication um, in, in your systems. And then over time, I think it's perfectly appropriate to demand that, that everyone turns on two-factor authentication, which is available natively in Microsoft accounts. Here's a couple quick ones, and then maybe we can talk about this uh, Slack article and whether work is being ruined by Slack and other kinds of uh, communication tools. Um, we've been gone a couple of weeks, so this is uh, a little old for us. Not that old, but it's April 23rd, 2019. NASA Insight detects first likely quake on Mars. Um, my wife and I are, uh, I've been, I've used Curiosity Links a lot when, uh, it's been a while since I've been teaching in uh, the K-12 classroom. I'm going to be returning. There'll be more about that uh, in another episode when I can officially uh, say things, but um Anyway, having a curiosity link and something that really piques students' interest uh, is something I love to do. And I think we've decided to start calling these wonder links, you know, because these may be things that really get kids asking questions. So this is actually from uh, the NASA uh, Insight Mission website. And uh, how cool that we've got, you know, robots on Mars now detecting uh, potentially, you know, tectonic kinds of activity, I, I think, as far as quakes. I don't know. I mean, do display tectonics operate on Mars? I mean, there's a great question, right? So 
anyway, really, really cool. I mean, the the stuff that that NASA is doing and has done with the rovers, uh, you know, and things on Mars and other stuff that's happening in the space program is pretty phenomenal. And then this other one, completely unrelated, but just kind of a quick one, is from Vox on April 21st, Ukraine election result. Uh, I don't know if I can say this name good. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, comedian, is now president. And so uh, basically today, thanks to mainstream media's connection to social media and a whole lot of other factors, which um, Neil Postman would probably just pull out his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, you know, folks that are able to catch the attention of the population and uh, catch their interest and maybe make them laugh, uh, apparently can become the chief executive of any nation in the world today. So um, what's, what's also important about this is if you are paying attention to the ways in which Russia and other countries were actively operating to subvert the democratic process and influence the democratic process in the Ukraine. The Ukraine um, prior to Brexit and the 2016 U.S. presidential election was really a test bed for a lot of um, you know, manipulation techniques as far as disinformation and ways in which you know, social media could be leveraged and brought to bear. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And again, we've said this before on the show, not, we're not a political show, but we do look at politics and current events and, and technology. Um, you ain't seen nothing yet when it comes to the use of technology to subvert the democratic process. And so anyway, kind of interesting there. Any, uh, quick ones you want to get Jason before we dive into this Slack article? Yeah, um, I would point out, this is just a follow-up to a previous article, uh, the Verge report on April 30th, that much to my chagrin, the Energizer Indiegogo of the 20,000-hour milliamp phone from Energizer, which was basically a massive battery pack with a phone stuck on top of it, which is my dream, right? That is my dream to own that phone. Um, was only able to get 30 backers on Indiegogo uh, for a total of $15,000 or asking for a million, um, and they unfortunately only had 30 people. In fact, uh, sadly for me, I would have probably put in uh, for um, one of those phones. They had a, a nice discount um, early on, and at, at, at risk of looking ridiculous, it would have been the ultimate conference travel phone uh, to carry that bad boy around. So, And it would be uh, a power bank that I could use to uh, power my, my Chromebook. But, um, yeah, sadly, uh, it did not make the minimum amount of a million dollars to move on with the development of that particular phone. So I will apparently not be purchasing the 20,000-hour milliamp Android phone from Energizer. So Related to that, I, I didn't mention that one of the things that also caught my attention with the Pixel 3a and 3a XL is the battery life. Yep. So the Pixel 3 has just under 3,000 milliamps, 2,915. Uh, the Pixel um, 3a is at 3,000, and the 3a XL has a 3,700 milliamp battery. So I am with you. I think that... You know, battery life is extremely important. The last thing you want to do, especially if you're traveling and you're relying on your technology, is to have your battery go dead. So those are also good reasons to take a look at, at the Pixel. And if any of you listening to this, by the way, want to reach out and let us know about your Pixel 3a experience or have any other feedback, we would encourage you to tweet to us and let us know. And I will be really curious to see. I, I think at this point we really invest in ecosystems. It's kind of like we got married. I was joking today uh, with uh, with my compadre in our technology department. It's sort of like um, at school, we're like polygamists as far as getting married, right? We're married to multiple platforms, but you're not going to separate from those very quickly, right? So we're investing right now as a family in the Google Home platform. I'm excited, by the way, to see Google continuing to develop that and the capabilities that they have. Even with podcasts, they talked about being able to, you know, stop and start podcasts on different, you know, smart speakers and different devices devices, things like that. But um, anyway, it's, it's, it is a big thing to think about shifting platforms and, you know, changing phones and things like that. But just as we should have an open mind as consumers, I think we need to be having open minds when it comes to technology in our schools as well. And considering that, Hey, you know, even if we've been a window shop forever or, Maybe even if we've been a Mac shop, you know, what is what's happening with Chrome, what's happening with these other platforms, uh, especially with regard to security and the ways in which we support these things. 
Um, I would love to do a survey, by the way, to find out what percentage of our faculty, you know, could just get by with a Chromebook. I think it's over 50%. I'm not saying we're, you know, replacing MacBooks with Chromebooks. We're not, but anyway, it's good to be open to new platforms. And are you, what is, what is your new dream phone, by the way, Jason? Are you, do you have one, uh, picked out once the, the wife approves of the purchase? <laughs> um, I honestly, if I, um, I'm thinking about the 3A, the Pixel 3A, and probably the, the better version of that is the Pixel 3, the smaller of the two. I'm trying to trend towards smaller phones uh, and then, uh, you know, carry a tablet perhaps with me if I want to watch, uh, watch, listen, uh, uh, more extensive media. But I, I think, you know, we're in a world where, um, you know, I, I think a larger phone and I, uh, the V20 is my other phone. It's a three-year-old Android phone that has a beautiful 5.8 inch screen. I think that actually encourages bad behavior, to be honest. And a smaller phone would keep me connected without encouraging that bad behavior. Interesting. So, all right. Well, one other article I wanted to jump into here was, I think, originally on Recode, uh, cross-posted to Vox. It was from May 1st, 2019. And it's called The Productivity Pit, How Slack is Ruining Work. Now, I have only dabbled very, very lightly, and this was like four years ago, into Slack. But the point of the article is that these tools, which were supposed to replace email and make us more efficient, are just making us not only more distracted, but they're also increasing the overall volume of messages in the workplace to the point where it's ridiculous. And in fact, even impossible in, in many companies, especially larger ones, but just to be able to get through the volume of messages. And so I was reflecting this past week on, you know, email and how, um, if we're honest, I mean, how many people out there get more email than they have time to process through on a daily basis? You know, we should, I think, be living by an inbox zero philosophy where, you know, we're able to have eyes on every single message, you know, delete the trash and, you know, process and deal with the stuff that needs to be and then be able to file these other things. And it's just uh, in, in, I think, a lot of organizations you know, email overload and overwhelm uh, is now the norm, not the exception. And so I thought this was a pretty, pretty important article. And uh, also the, the things that they pointed out about deep, uh, deep thought, you know, they, they cite a Microsoft study that says it takes 25 minutes to get back to the task you were working on, you know, when you're interrupted even longer to get into a flow state. And so again, like, People in prior generations, of course, we've always been able to be interrupted. You're a parent, you know, young kids. I mean, hello, it's just your life is all about interruptions. But the workplace is now such an interruptible environment and technology um, can in, in many ways, at least according to the authors here. And I, I think I agree with them really, um, you know, help that bad cause of, of being distracted. So how do you deal with that, Jason? And have you dabbled with Slack? And what does your information radar screen look like besides email? Or is it all email? Is that, is that it? Uh, well, I, I pride myself in processing a lot of emails. And part of it is because in the context of my job, 97% of the people I deal with are remote to me because I help run a distance learning program. So email and email responsiveness is an extremely important part of my strategy, and I just don't like to let email sit. And even though it, 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 it's become more controversial, I'm really into Merlin Mann's concept of inbox zero. I want to try to get the email dealt with or at least uh, added to action items at the end of, of every day and certainly at the end of every week so the emails don't get lost. But so I, 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 I've also just played with Slack, too. Admittedly, I haven't been able to find a team that would really work on it with me. We tried this. Briefly at MTDA, and I just couldn't get other than Mike uh, in my offices to really jump in and, and utilize Slack, even though I think it could be a good thing for our offices. But I know a lot of fake people do use Slack, and also Slack has been a kind of an important ed tech tool from the standpoint of getting groups of, of, of teachers and tech enthusiasts together. I know, for example, there's a an Apple EDU Slack running around there somewhere that has a lot of apparently very uh, interested users and 
I've heard great things about the tool. When I read this, and, and to be clear, I also do trainings for, for schools and teachers and, and districts about digital distractions, important topic for me, but it's interesting because the information also conflicts for me in, in this way. Um, there's a reference to a Microsoft study in the article you're talking about, Wes. I would also point our listeners to um, another great study from, and I love to cite the, the institution this came from, from the Department of, of Infomatics at UC. Irvine. Gloria Mark released a study, uh, this was a couple of years back, about when people do get kind of in the zone, right, same kind of stuff that, that's talked about in this article, you are distracted by something, you know, 23 minutes, 15 seconds it takes to get back to that zone again, and I use this research when I talk to teachers and educators from the standpoint of thinking about your phone and the way it tells you things all the time via notifications. It's almost like your phone is, you know, poking on your shoulder all the time saying, hey there, hey there, hey there. And if you especially have not used some of the great tools available to turn off notifications for various apps or you're not selective, then those disruptions are 100% equal, right? And I like to show off an old uh, screenshot I took from an iPad a couple of years ago that had something called, I think it was like Vango on there that was sending me a notification. I can't even tell you what the heck Vango is. So that it becomes as important then as other notifications like text messages from my mom. Those are not equal by, by any definition of, of, of equality. So for me, um, I think managing that's important. But I want to juxtaposition that for a second and introduce folks. You mentioned like my personal uh, uh, issue with this. Um, this conflicts for me in a very interesting way. There's a, a productivity technique that's called the Pomodoro technique. And Pomodoro is a, um, a, a, if you go to the super Pomodoro advocates, they'll tell you it's more than just a timer. But one of the things that I sometimes do when I am, uh, when I have a chunk of work to do that I don't particularly want to do, I will set what's called Pomodoros. And the idea behind it is, it's five cycles of 25 minutes on, five minutes off, and then after five cycles, you get a 25-minute break. So it's basically saying that in a three-hour chunk, you will spend roughly um, two hours and 10 or so minutes of that in productivity, right? And the rest of that time, you can do stuff other than the things you need to be productive on. And I found that, especially when I have a lot of tasks that need to be complete that I don't want to sit down and do, it's a really effective strategy for me. But think about that for a second. 25 minutes of work time, according to the research about distraction, um, I'm only getting started on the zone when my timer goes off in a Pomodoro timer uh, that I can then take a five-minute break. And I find it to, I've found it to have been enormously effective. And at work, when I do Pomodoros, that five-minute break is getting up out of my desk and walking around the building for five minutes. And so, yeah, I think it's really interesting. The research conflicts a little bit about what that means or how we're supposed to respond to things. But, you know, I have no doubt that... Uh, that that great connection software, right? Like Slack, Slack is great connection software. The problem with great connection software is you're connected to everyone, right? And if everyone is demanding of your attention for product uh, productive things or not, you can't get your work done. If you send emails to all those folks that have emailed you and ask for a response, guess what, you know, tomorrow looks like. I mean, the feedback loops here can be overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. So, and you know, I don't know if we're t we're paying enough attention to this in in ed tech world, right? Like, I um, by the way, I, I'm in a classroom 2.0 uh, presentation on this that you can easily find on on the the, the Google's. Um, I've done this at conferences. It's a great presentation. I think it's a very thoughtful. A presentation about how we need to take instructional authority in classrooms and help teach kids about when distraction is something we can invite into our lives and when we can't. I also think there's messages for parents there. But to be frank, uh, you know, even though we're kind of tiptoeing towards this, I think broadly in our culture as part of the grand tech correction we talk about, you know, I don't know if there is a lot of time spent thinking about, well, if we're going to have students with nose and laptops for 49 minutes, 49 minutes a period in, in a high school or middle school environment, 
that's fine, but should we be thinking about giving them breaks or about helping them diminish distractions? Um, one of my favorite uh, distractionless uh, reading tools in Google is the Rocket Reader plugin that strips away everything but the core text of a web page. If you're using kind of a, uh, this is more of a dated notion now, but like a web quest model where you're sending kids out to 10 or 12 sites to gather information to help construct learning, that's an interesting strategy, you know, using those d d diverse resources, but web pages are shockingly distracting. They have advertising on them. They link to other websites. That stuff is weaponized for your attention, right? Like you're supposed to click on it because that's the intent of it, right? It is, it is uh, if you've ever clicked on a link that says, you know, 25 child stores that are in prison right now, right? And then they show you a picture of someone that's, wait, that person's not in prison. Well, it's just a trick, right? They want Want your attention and uh, in a world where we're sending kids out to the internet without tools or at least some acknowledgement that you know the internet distracts you I think we're maybe diminishing our opportunities to truly think about and evolve our practices for the best for learning and and, and for gathering and processing information amen well I appreciate you um, mentioning the that uh, strategy um, the what you call it the pomodoro. pomodoro pomodoro yeah there you go so in fact be sure to check out our show notes if you have not already because all of our reference links and articles are going to be there including probably a few more so we are getting close to the top of the hour and we actually started on time tonight so shall we you want to, anything else you want to hit before we geek of the weekend? Uh, let me take a look here. I think a lot, a lot of interesting stuff going on right now. Um, so keep your eye on. Um, uh, actually, I'll just this one really quickly. This was going to be my headline last week, but uh, UPS is going to start using zero emission hydrogen semi trucks, which is awesome and so much possibility there from the standpoint of uh, uh zero emissions zero carbon emissions and as we try to figure out what to do about again not a political show global warming and and the effects of global warming on the earth i think uh, things like that where we can take common expected processes and add a no carbon impact strategy there that is super duper cool so keep an eye on that technology from our friends at ups and toyota Awesome. Well, we'll do our Geeks of the Week here. Um, I uh, actually have have two. Um, I use info. I, I like to create info pics. Hey, I like to create media, if you didn't know that. Uh, showwithmedia.com. Um, but uh, info pics require you to have a photograph. And one of my favorite sites for quite a while now, maybe the last year or so, has been Unsplash. Um, unlike a Creative Commons licensed image, which at a minimum, you basically have to give the credit to who took that picture. Um, Unsplash images are entirely attribution and copyright free. So the photographers that donate to the uh, site just, you know, give away all the rights and say, hey, just do whatever you want to with that, uh, with that picture. So you can uh, actually contribute your own. And I have started to do that with a few different pictures. So I only have 11 pictures there, uh, but it's pretty cool. And it's neat to be able to give back to that community. Um, I am using that website, you know, multiple times a week. And it is uh, a curated community, uh, but you'll find a lot of really high quality images. And it's also neat because they've got little links that you can use to thank the photographer, give them feedback, let them know that you're using their link and or their, their photograph. And that's pretty cool. Um, the second Geek of the Week is uh, from a podcast that is definitely a big favorite called The Daily. That is from the New York Times. And this just happened this week. It's a two-parter called The Chinese Surveillance State. And again, uh, keeping in mind that the words we say may already and will be soon, um, we think, you know, transcribed. Um, man, this is an this is a situation that should be in the headlines far more than it is today. You know, because of concerns about trade and other kinds of things, um, the United States, which should be standing up uh, against this. Uh, there's, there's, we believe that there may be up to a million people in re-education camps today in Western China, uh, who are part of the Muslim minority there. And, uh, this is just a real eye-opener about the ways in which surveillance is being used in the most dystopian and George Orwellian ways, uh, to try and in completely intimidate a population 
from speaking out, from expressing, from advocating, uh, from having a voice. Uh, the second part is an interview with someone who is um, who, who came from China, who's part of the it's the Uyghur uh, minority that is the the Muslim um, culture there. And anyway, it's it's just it's mind blowing. So really encourage you to check this out. Uh, it's something that we should be all knowing a lot more about, and we honestly should be a lot more upset about it. Uh, my last thought here, and I think it's made in the podcast. We should have, from a value standpoint, a real difference between the United States and, and let's say, communist China when it comes to the use of surveillance technologies. And, of course, stopping terrorism and providing for safety is important to every single government, every single state. But the ways in which that is being deployed right now, especially in Western China but in other places, uh, is perhaps a harbinger of the future that is not real pleasant and so encourage people to check that out yep interesting stuff and um if you are if you are a, a politics geek i strongly recommend reading uh reading up on this issue in deeper detail it's it's uh the surveillance capitalism piece here is really extraordinary when you start to consider that china's exporting technologies to governments around the world that are being used for state surveillance and if you care about privacy if you care about uh, government interference, democracy, in yeah. free rights, expression, universal declaration of human rights. You know, that's care about any of that stuff. Yeah. You know, then I think this is something to keep an eye on. And I, I'm generally a, 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 a global trade advocate, right? And I still think that we have to be very cautious here. And also we need to be thinking very carefully about what this means to us. So speaking of capitalism, Wes, I'm going to go in another direction tonight and just go straight capitalist. Uh, um, trim, uh, asktrim.com is an interesting service, and the reason why I mention this this time is that it actually did something for me um, in the last couple of months. Trim is a service you sign up on, and you put in all the people that you're buying monthly service from, and Trim asks you for its permission to go and renegotiate out bills. And so I put in my charter internet service bill four months ago, and I got a text message 24 hours ago saying that uh, we would like to try to ne negotiate your internet price lower with the good people at Charter. And so I gave them permission to call on my behalf. And this afternoon, I got a text message that said they've renegotiated the price of my Charter bill. And it is 18% less than it was um uh, uh, than it was 24 hours ago, and they're going to charge me a 25% premium of what I saved. But I sure enough, I went online today, and I saw that your new uh, your new contract is available, and I did. They did commit me to 12 months of service from them, which was fine. I gave them permission to do so. In exchange for that, they have saved me $120 in the next year. So I'm going to actually use this for my parents. Um, they can't seem to really figure out. I told them to threaten to, to just, if it's called the Chicken Challenge. I, I stole that from Cord Cutters, a, a podcast with um, uh, two guys whose names I can't remember. But the Cord, or no, Cord Killers podcast, excuse me. And Cord Killers podcast calls it the Chicken Challenge. Cutter Cable Company said, I'm done. And they will usually send you to their retention department and offer you a substantially lower price for services. I can't talk my parents into that quite yet because they're uh, apparently not as brazen or gutsy. But I might uh, actually buy them a trim subscription and say, let them negotiate a, a lower price for you. So asktrim.com. And I will put the Twitter to, to trim on there as well. And just as a quick addition, one of the reasons why Twitter remains such a fantastic tool is because of the ways in which it helps you connect to other ideas that are related, right? So I clicked on the bottom of the page, looked at their webs, at their Twitter, and, you know, they've shared stuff themselves, but they've also retweeted others. And so one of their retweets is Tori Dunlap, uh, who is uh, a, a finance person. And so she's got a compilation of her favorite money tools, of which, of course, Trim is one. But uh, there's also Charlie Finance um, and some others. The coupon ones don't have as much uh, you know, appeal to me. I, I do think we need to tell people to be really careful out there, guys, because there are people, and if you didn't know this, out to trick you. Every single week as a technology director, I am helping people remove malware from their computers, sometimes multiple times a week. And a lot of times it's because they've clicked on something that said free coupons or, you know, optimize your search or whatever. So we want to be careful and you want to be, you know, going with trusted 
sources when you're going to be installing things and especially giving permission to things like your bank account, like, you know, your, your uh, accounts that you're paying for. Um, but anyway, glad to know about that and also glad to have a chance to follow them and learn about some other uh, good finance tools. Awesome. So, Wes, when you're not podcasting, where can people find you on the interwebs? I am W Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org, where I am every once in a while posting something. But probably we'll be posting a little bit more in the summer because, hey, we've only got, I think, nine more days of school. We've got finals coming up, but the summer is coming on us soon. So how about you, Jason? Are you still the tech-savvy administrator in residence up for NCCE? I am. I, I I like to work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, where I blog and also produce occasional interesting videos at blog.ncc.org. And we are starting. We have a lot of great events going on in C, by the way, including a wonderful maker camp this summer um, in fabulous Pack Forest, Washington, which is a, actually the place I learned Moodle 15 years ago. Wonderful location to connect with educators from this region, and uh, in this particular case, talk about maker in the classroom and. And we also have additional uh, events from across the EdTech uh, universe that will be posted on that website, blog.cc.org. And, of course, um, uh, you know, Twitter is pretty great for connecting. Uh, uh, Tech Savvy Teach is my handle on Twitter. And, for example, this week you could have heard me talk about my new distaste for the morning edition uh, new theme from NPR. Apparently, I... I uh, have established myself as an old cranky dude by complaining that I don't like the new theme, the newest theme in 40 years for Morning Edition and other um, other delightful observations for me. So this thing here, though, like what we're talking about right now, this is the EdTech Situation Room. We're a once-a-week podcast that comes to you live on Wednesday evenings, most Wednesday evenings, when we don't have something else we need to pay attention to. Uh, you can watch us live by going to our Twitter account, EdTechSR, and looking for the link to our live broadcast every week. It's at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, I believe it's 300 UTC, maybe 400 now that the time change is, is headed over. But in any case, you can go there and know we're broadcasting live. We'd love to have you in the chat room um, and check in with us on a weekly basis. Uh, but if you can't do that, you can download a teeny tiny audio version at our website at techsr.com, where you can also see the week's links that kind of uh, uh, channel our stories for the week. And then you can also download our podcast anywhere finer podcasts are aggregated. And as it turns out, um, I have yet to find an app as of late that doesn't have EdTechSR there for you to download. Awesome. Well, we hope everyone will be safe out there and remember that you may be the best person for someone to learn how to be safe online and, uh, you know, not only how to, you know, get the latest tip or trick, but, you know, how to do things like stop identity theft or prevent themselves from being hacked. So don't underestimate the importance of your conversation about geeky stuff and don't be ashamed of your inner geek. <laughs>